It says in verse 1 of Mark chapter 2, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, him being Jesus, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose, took up his bed, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Here, to give you some context, Jesus had just finished healing a couple people. There's a guy who is, uh, he was possessed by some demons. Jesus cast him out. There's a guy who is full of leprosy which was a terrible disease that ate, ate your flesh back in the day. And Jesus healed that person as well. He told these guys, listen, my time has not yet come. Please just don't say anything to anybody. Why do you say that? Because he didn't want the word to get spread out. And before his ministry was, his time in ministry was up, he didn't want to be crucified sooner than when the father had planned. So he didn't want his fame to be spread too quickly or anything like that. So he, he was doing it very privately and not publicly at all. Well, these guys were so psyched that they got healed that they told everybody. They didn't listen to Jesus. They just tell everybody. And so it says prior to this that Jesus can't even enter these cities because there's so many people that wanted to speak to him, wanted to see him, wanted to be healed by him. So he goes to this one house, and what happened? There was a rumor. It was heard that he was in the house. And everybody gathers there, packs out the place. It's crazy. So i got to ask myself at this point in time, what can we do to get people to come to church? How can we do what he did? That's all we want, right? We want as many people as possible to know Jesus. So how do we get people to come to church? I mean, you guys have friends that aren't in church. What do you do? Hey, man, come to church. I don't want to. All right, well, okay, you're going to burn in hell. You don't say that, right? That's messed up. No one, if you evangelize like that, please do us all a favor, just don't talk. None of us do that. But how do you get people to come to church, right? Maybe we have to change the way youth group looks. Maybe we got to start playing more games. Maybe we need to, like, fix it. I mean, look at those walls. Those are dirty. That's terrible. Maybe if we start, like, have a stage again, give it a concert feel. I mean, what, what do people like to do? People like to party and drink. We probably can't drink, but maybe we can party. Yeah, you know, maybe just like pinata. Everyone loves a pinata. So we're going to get a pinata here, and people can start whacking in stuff. And if we had Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber is apparently a Christian. Bring him here. Thousands of people would probably come, right? 
So that's how you get people in church. You just do the most crazy, ridiculous antics, and people will come, right? Maybe the church is just too irrelevant today. People are thinking, well, what's the need for a youth group? You know, I, I go to a Christian school, or I, I'm homeschooled, or I go to church all the time. Why do I have to go to church on a Friday night? I mean, it's really inconvenient. All my friends party on Friday nights, and I can because, you know, there's youth group. Ugh. Or maybe it's just like we're just not hip enough. Who goes to church on a Friday night anyway? Maybe we're just irrelevant, or people don't see the need to come to youth group. Maybe we're not talking about the, the issues that you guys are facing. And I'm here talking about, I don't know, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. But I'm talking about something, and you're just like, I really want you to talk about what I'm facing, the struggles that I'm going through. And you're not, so I'm not going to come. So maybe I have to start listening to you guys a little bit more, just sitting down and asking, what do you want me to teach on? Let's, let's talk about what you want to do tonight, because we're here for you. Or maybe that the problem is that the competition is just too desirable. So maybe there's lucrative job opportunities that someone has. I mean, come on. Like if you were told that you could be, I don't know, whatever you want to be. Let's say that you, you have a dream to be a teacher one day. And someone tells you like you can have this lucrative job position if you work Friday nights for the next three years. Or let's say that you really want a job being an astronaut. And then NASA comes down and it's like, man, all you have to do is sacrifice the next fr uh, Fridays, every Friday for the next four years. And you can join NASA and be an astronaut. Like, awesome. So maybe the problem is the competition. Or maybe it's like th there's these shows going on on Friday nights at Starland, you know, out in the city. We got to put an end to these shows. I mean, come on, really? Perhaps the existence of youth group is just hanging by a thread and all that's keeping it together is the fact that Satan hasn't been clever enough to figure he's going to start a club across the street. The minute that goes up, everyone starts coming to, stops coming to church. So maybe we, we just got to face the music. We're boring, irrelevant, and no one wants to listen to boring teachers in addition to the one, ones they have in school. Or perhaps all you need, maybe, let's just say maybe all you need is Jesus. Maybe you don't need any of those things. Maybe the fact that Jesus is in the house is enough to bring people here. And maybe the reason why people aren't here is because they don't believe Jesus is in the house. That's what happened, right? Like, think about this. If Jesus physically was going to show up here tonight and we put out flyers like, hey, by the way, guys, Jesus is actually coming to church tonight. It's about time, really. We've been awaiting his second coming and we're like talking about the end of the world and stuff. But he's coming tonight, this Friday. So be there. Everybody would be there. You'd see like babies there. You'd see these adults that shouldn't be here. They'd be here. Everybody would be here. So what tactics do they use? What did Jesus do? He must have had something. Was he like dancing? Was he doing magic tricks? No. It says in verse 2 that he preached the word to them. That's it. So we're saying that. Jesus packed out a house without doing magic tricks, without doing this fan fancy stuff. All he did was show up and preach the word. That's it? Yeah, that's it. Perhaps we've gotten to the point where we've forgotten that this is the word of God and that Jesus promised that his presence would be with us, that we are God's house. This church is just a building, but we are his church. 
We are his bride. And when we gather in fellowship together, he really is here amongst us. Do you believe that tonight? Do you believe that Jesus is here right now? That God is here with us? You can nod. You can say yes. Maybe. Maybe not. I think many of us forget that. When I was in youth group many years ago, I know I talk a lot, a, a lot about this, but that's because it wasn't that long ago. I remember I was asked to work on Friday nights. And it killed me. They asked me not, you know, not every Friday, just every other Friday. It killed me. And it wasn't the fact that I was missing out on my friends. It was a little bit. But it was mostly, I just felt like if I didn't go to youth group that night, I would miss out on the word of God that he had for me. I was that scared that the night I was working at my job would be the one night that I needed to hear was being spoken by the youth pastor here at the church. And I was terrified. And so I'd show up, even after I was done working, I'd show up to, to youth group and all the youth leaders gave me the, you know, evil eye. and like, oh, all right, skipping out on youth group. And I would just be like so torn, like, oh, what did he talk about? I don't know. And I'm just, I was so upset. Even when I wasn't that consistent of a Christian, to be honest. Maybe you don't know about the history of Calvary Chapel, but this started with a man named Chuck Smith, who was a balding middle-aged man who hung out with hippies. Kind of a weird thing. But in California, at a beach called Corona Del Mar, thousands of hippies, these young people, would go and listen to this guy, Chuck Smith who was not hip, was not cool, he just preached the word. And if you've known Chuck Smith or listened to Chuck Smith, he's not like engaging, he's not really entertaining, he's kind of this boring old man. But there's something about the joy that's inside of him that makes him really someone that you want to listen to. You listen to what he's saying, you know that he believes every word that he's saying. He's not making it up and he really does have joy deep down in his heart. He has that big cheesy smile like this. And you know it's not fake. And it kind of bugs you that it's not fake. It's like, what does he have that I don't have? In John chapter 6, verse 68, it's like Peter and the apostles said to Jesus, after Jesus says, are you going to leave too, after everybody leaves? It's kind of Jesus' fault, really, because he's like, hey, if you want to follow me, you got, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone's like, oh, okay, see you later. <laughs> kind of weird. And Peter says to Jesus, after Jesus, like, you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? I could go party. I could go hang out with those friends. I can do whatever else everyone else is doing. But you have the words of eternal life. And that's what I want. I think about Jacob when he was fleeing from Esau after his father Isaac gave him a blessing. You remember Jacob in, in Genesis he completely like just tricked his father, tricked his brother, stole the blessing. And then Isaac sends him out, gives him a blessing, and he's afraid that his brother Esau is going to kill him. So he's walking out alone, scared, terrified, takes a nap. You know, he goes to sleep actually. His head is resting on a rock. He doesn't even have a pillow or anything. He falls asleep and he wakes up. He sees these angels descending and ascending into heaven on this ladder called, you know, Jacob's Ladder. It's, 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 uh, it's been called in the past. And Jesus, well, God said to him in Genesis chapter 28, In you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. 
Have you ever had a night like that? You show up to youth care and you're like, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know it. Think about that. The Lord is in this place. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Where was he? He was in the middle of nowhere. But he recognized that the middle of nowhere was still God's house because God was there. It doesn't matter what your location looks like. You could be in China and be persecuted. You could be in jail, yet you could be in God's house if God's there, if God is present. So could it be that we have forgotten what it means to be in the house of God? Could it be that we've forgotten, as the psalmist says in Psalm 84, verse 2 and 4, I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord with my whole being, body, and soul. I will shout joyfully to living God. What joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. It's fun. I just love leading, you know, I'm not leading worship. I love it when we're going through worship here. I just love singing here. It's just like, it's different. And not to say that like, you know, church on Sundays is bad or anything. That's fun too. But just, there's something special about what we have here. In Psalm 84 verse 10, it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Can you say that? I would rather spend a day here than anywhere else. You could take me a billion other places. I'd rather be here than anywhere else. Here's the first point, and here's the thing that we need to remember today. If Jesus is in the house, don't stand outside. If Jesus is in the house, get in the house. Why are we standing outside? I love Psalm chapter 122 where this guy has, has this conversation. And he's basically saying like, I'm glad that you said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. We've been standing in your gates this whole time. That's a paraphrase. A lot of us are standing out in the courtyard and we haven't moved into God's house. Why? There's nothing keeping us from going in there. It's ourselves. Have we forgotten our need for his word? That you and I need God's word every single day. It's not enough on Sunday. And listen, Sunday, some of you guys look at Sunday as if it's like a separate thing. And you got to stop that. Sunday is church too. It's not your parents' church. It's your church. And, and, and this is where you make the difference. Ready? Is Pastor Lloyd your pastor or your parents' pastor? Pastor Lloyd is my pastor. Is he your pastor? Is he the one who's responsible for your soul? A lot of grown-ups don't make that. Grown-ups. <laughs> I'm like a kid. A lot of adults don't make that connection. Like, yeah, you know, I like this church, but it's not their church. I like Pastor Lloyd, but he's not, his, their, Pastor Lloyd isn't their pastor. And we have to see it that God has placed his leadership in, in charge to care for your soul. That's why we exist here as a church. It's not like we have a church here and they have a church there. We are one church and we have one body. Even if you're a part of a separate fellowship, we are all here together. So how long can you go without eating? How long can you go without taking a shower? I mean, we'd all know, right? I'm starving. Like, you miss a meal, I'm starving. I miss, like, I realized three weeks ago, maybe, maybe a month ago, I realized I eat four meals a day. I didn't realize, I didn't know that. But apparently all my life I've eaten four meals a day. I didn't recognize that. I eat breakfast, eat lunch, eat dinner, like around six, seven. And then when I get home at one o'clock, I eat a fourth dinner second dinner. So I eat a lot. You miss one meal and you're just, you go crazy. You miss a shower, you smell bad. 
And the Bible cleanses us. The Bible is the living bread that we need every single day. And if we don't get that analogy, perhaps it's possible that we don't think the, world is, the word is that important to us. We don't see that it's that important that it's just like taking a shower or just as important as us having a really good meal. But there was a group that did see their need for Jesus. We'll talk about them in verse 3. So, then they came to him, in verse 3, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed where, on which the paralytic was laying. So, group of friends, the squad, this crew, these homies, had a friend who was paralyzed. And so... They walked over, saw the house, and like, oh, man, that's a bummer. It's all crowded. You could probably fit only about 50 people inside the house. So there's a bunch of people outside of the house on top of being inside of the house, packed even to the doors you couldn't get in. So what do they do? They're like, oh, man, that's, that's a bummer. Let's go home. No, they didn't. They went up on the roof. You could access the, the stairs on the outside, got on the roof, and it was made with straw and some clay and some sticks, and they tore the roof apart. And lowered their friend down. I mean, that's a lot of faith. Think about it. Because, like, they put him down, and if, they don't, if Jesus doesn't heal him, then he's, like, trapped there until it's over. It'd be really awkward. Here's a group that saw their need for Jesus. Thinking about this paralytic, I think we, we got to ask ourselves the question, why do people have to suffer? Why are people hurting in the first place? I was just reading on the the news that there's a, a hospital in Florida that's, for whatever reason, they don't know how to perform operations on babies. And so there's been like nine deaths in the past couple years of these infants because they, they can't do the, the surgery correctly. And so CNN is, has been covering it. It's been terrible. And so you got to ask yourself, why do these people have to suffer? Why do these children have to die? We go through all kinds of suffering, whether it's circumstantial suffering, maybe you have a family member that's absent in your life. Maybe you have, your parents are fighting all the time. Or maybe it's emotional suffering. And it's a relationship that's broken, a person that's hurt you. Or maybe it's physical suffering where you, you're sick. Or maybe you even have cancer, your family has cancer. There's all types of suffering. And in the times of Jesus, they believed that sin and suffering were deeply connected. So, that means that they believed that you could even sin in the womb. That you could make a mistake as an infant. And in John chapter 9, we know, we covered this before, that Jesus was passing by and he saw a man who was blind from birth and the disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. So it was a stereotype back then that if you were sick, that was because you sinned or because your parents sinned. That someone messed up along the way. And in one sense, they are connected in that all suffering is due to the fall. The fact that you suffer and I suffer is because someone fell somewhere. Adam and Eve did. And some sins are a direct result of our, our personal sin. Like the pool of Bethesda, the man in uh, John chapter 5. It would seem like this guy, perhaps too, his sin, I mean the fact that he's suffering is due to the fact that he personally sinned. Now if you are an alcoholic... You will have some suffering in your life due to your sin. It's just going to happen. You might have liver cancer. You might have problems with your body. You might have problems in your family due to the fact that you are sinning. 
But not all of our suffering is the result of our sin. And we still have this superstition today, right? When something bad happens, what do you ask? What did I do to deserve this? What does that imply? That implies that you believe if you're suffering, it's because you did something wrong. It's this whole karma thing. So imagine how this paralytic was treated by most people. Most people look at this paralytic and said, oh man, this guy, he deserves that. He deserves what he's going through. And maybe people have treated you that way. If you're suffering, people look at you like you deserve everything you're going through. Even if it's the fact that you're suffering is because of your own sin. You got pregnant, your friends are hurting, they slept around, you get an STD, whatever. And people look at you and like, you know what? You deserve what you're going through. And that's messed up. Well, these four friends didn't treat this paralytic that way. These four friends were so concerned about their friend being healed, they were willing to do whatever it takes. In other words, you might want to write this down, they saw suffering as an opportunity to minister. Do you see that? Suffering can be an opportunity for God to show his power. Even in the worst of all possible circumstances, that is an opportunity for God to show himself strong on your behalf. That is an opportunity. When you see a friend who's going through a tough time, you as a Christian should be thinking, I can be there for that person because I have hope, the living hope. I have Jesus Christ in my life. In John chapter 9, remember how Jesus responds to the disciples. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but what? That the works of God should be revealed in him. It wasn't his sin, it wasn't his parents' sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, we have the cure. You and I have the cure, and we have the opportunity to share the gospel. And when people are hurting in this life, we have the cure, and we can supply it to those people. And now listen, if you are a Christian here today, and you're suffering, remember that some pain has some good purposes. In other words, if you have a toothache, that's because you have a cavity, and you should get that checked out. Pain can sometimes be a good thing because it's telling you that something's wrong. If you are hurt and you, you got something infected in your elbow like I do, like you got a scab and you just let it rot and it's like all green and gooey and you got an infection, you need to get that taken care of. And it's going to hurt for a reason. It does you no good to say, let's dull the pain. I know it will help me if I just ignore it. No, if, if you have pain, you should get that checked out. Now listen. Pain in your body shows that there's something wrong with your body. And pain in this world shows that there's something wrong in this world. A lot of times what happens is we don't get in God's house because we're not suffering. We're not going through any. And isn't it true that whenever you are suffering, your prayer life just, you know, skyrockets? Even atheists, they start praying. The minute that you start suffering, God, why? Why did you do this to me? Like you don't even believe in God, you're praying to God. Isn't it true that when we're going through tough times, we call on anybody? It doesn't matter. You don't even know who God is. You're like, Buddha! I don't even think he is supposed to be a God. You call on anybody because you just want help. But pain in this world shows us that there's something wrong. It wasn't meant to be this way, and we aren't to be attached to the life that we're living here. I love what C.S. Lewis said. It's a popular quote, but he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
pain causes us to reflect on our lives. In other words, where are you and I placing our treasure? Where are we, what are we trusting in? Because the testing, the trials, tell you what the foundation is like. Whether you're built on the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, which is God, or you've built your foundation on some, or you built on top of a foundation that's something else. And unless it's built on the rock, the solid rock of Jesus Christ, it's going to be sifting sand. And when the storms come and the winds blow, your whole house is going to come down and you're going to be devastated. So you've trusted it in a job opportunity. And you're like, I'm my entire career path. I got everything laid out. I, I think it's funny because some people will actually say like, man, I read this book. You know, it's telling me how to like have a successful life. I read this thing it gives me the like, three keys to success. It was written by this guy and that guy, and they're all successful people. Here's the big problem with that. That assumes that you have control over your life. You're assuming that if you follow your plans, oh, I have this plan, I'm going to go to school, and I'm going to get these grades, I'm going to do all these things, and it's all dependent on me. No, it's not. Because tomorrow, your mom could get cancer. Tomorrow, you could get cancer. You could die. You could drive home tonight and die. And then all your plans are ruined. Things happen in this life, unfortunately. And the question is, when are we going to wake up and recognize that this life is not meant to indulge in our own pleasures? It's not meant to be a circus that we just entertain ourselves for a little bit and then we just go off on a merry way and we die. But this life is only temporary. And we need to place our treasure in heaven because that's the only place that lasts. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, you all know the verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Don't store up your treasure where moth, rust, and, and all these things break in and steal. But store your treasure in heaven where they can't be reached. And so for the Christian, rem remember that when you're going through trial, when you're going through suffering, it reminds us of the future glory. In other words, this is not our home. Romans chapter 8, verse eight, 18 says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Every one of you, I'm assuming, has gone through suffering. Because in the Bible, it actually promises suffering. You can, you may have peace, but suffering is promised. And whether or not you enter that peace is contingent on whether or not you believe in Jesus. And you're willing to trust in him. But... I love what also C.S. Lewis said. He said, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Do you believe that heaven's worth it? That you could be suffering this entire life. Your entire life could be built up of suffering, but if you gain heaven, it makes everything worth it. Like we were talking about heaven today, some of us in our evangelism class. And it's like, I think one of Satan's greatest tactics is to make you think that heaven's boring. And you're going to be like, what are you going to do for eternity? That's because you can't imagine anything that you do on earth to be fun for eternity. Because everything on earth is temporal. So no matter how much fun you, do, you have doing stuff, it won't last forever. But the things in heaven do. So suffering, remember, it's an opportunity to see God's power. Suffering is an opportunity for you as a Christian because you have hope. You're not like them. You're not, like a, you're not a person who doesn't have hope, but you can share that hope with someone else. That's an opportunity for you to minister to those people all around us. And so that's what the friends did. 
And we look again at verse 3 through 5. So they came, brought this paralytic. They couldn't come near him because of the crowd, uncovered the roof. They broke in through, let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. And verse 5, pay attention now. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, like I said before, they could have looked at the circumstances before them and said, this is impossible. How are we ever going to get Jesus' attention? What's the point? Let's turn around and let's go home. But they had faith. What's really interesting about that is it's not this man's faith. It's not the paralytic's faith, although I'm sure that he had some. It's the faith of the friends. Isn't that weird to think about? It's the faith of those that brought the paralytic that saved him. So thinking about that, think about what faith is, that these friends were so determined to get their friend to Jesus that they didn't even see the obstacles in front of them. Here's the next thing that you need to know tonight. That faith doesn't waver at the obstacles. It believes in the outcome. Faith doesn't waver at the obstacles. It believes in the outcome. In other words, it's just like in Mark chapter 11, verse 22 to 24, that Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them, and you will not be able to get them. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you will have them. If you believe, don't doubt, don't waver. You can look at a mountain. We could go outside and look at a mountain and say, be removed, then it will be cast into the sea. And, and you're already thinking like, really? It's really gonna be cast into the sea. I don't believe you. That's what Jesus says. What's the question? Not like, are we gonna go out and do dumb things? Like start like lifting people and like, let's see if this happens. No, it's not gonna happen like that. Has to be done in Jesus' name, number one. But if it is done in Jesus' name and it's God's will, then what's the obstacle? It's yourself, isn't it? Look at the people in the Bible that are great people of faith. David and Goliath. What happened? Was David like, you know, I would really like to slay Goliath, but he's really tall. Uh, he has a giant sword that weighs more than me. You know what? This is probably about, I'm turning around. I'm going home. I'm going home right now. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even look at the obstacles. He says, give me that giant. What about Caleb and Joshua? They went to spy out the land, the promised land, and they saw all these giants all around, and everybody else is like, oh my gosh, giants. And they're like, giant grapes. Awesome, let's go. They didn't see the obstacles. They believed in the outcome. Like, God said he's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. So what are we waiting for? Think about Noah building a boat when rain never happened before. And so Noah's building this boat. Everyone's making fun of him. Like, what are you building that boat for, Noah? He's like, this thing called rain, it's like water that falls from the sky. Imagine describing rain before rain happens. Like, you see the ocean? It's like going to fall from the sky and everyone's going to die. Like, okay, great. You do that boat building thing that you do. And he's like, yes, I'm going to hire the monkeys around me to help me. I think that happened in the Noah movie, and that didn't happen in real life. But Abraham, God promised Abraham that he'd have more descendants than the stars in heaven. And that's when he was over 100 years old. 
And so, like, Sarah laughed, like, literally laughed in the Bible. She's like, ha, ha, that's funny. And, and then the angel says, like, why are you laughing? That's not funny. Like, I would probably laugh. <laughs> like, that's really funny. She's like 100 years old. She's going to have a baby. Nice. And it's like, because you have doubted. And it's like, oh, gosh. And just get scared. But Abraham was different. In Romans chapter 4, it says that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. I've asked you this question before, but it's worth asking again. If God promised you that the next five people you talk to that don't believe in God would be saved, would you do it? Yeah, everybody would do it. So why don't we do it? Well, I don't know if they're going to be saved. Well, you don't know if they would be saved. So why don't you do it? It's because of our own insecurities. But faith believes that God is going to deal with the outcome because he's been faithful. So let's not waver at the obstacles. These four friends so cared about their paralytic friend. They didn't care about the obstacles. They wanted to see their friend heal, healed. Think about that woman who just wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. If I can just touch his clothes, I know I'll be healed. That never happened before. If I could just touch his clothes, I know I'm going to be healed. That's faith. It doesn't waver at the obstacles. Hebrews 10 verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I remember when I was asked to take over junior high ministry and Andy asked me and I was looking at him like, realize when he asked me, I was 22. So not some of you guys being seniors, I'm not like, I wasn't that much older than you. So imagine yourself four years if you're 18 being asked to take over the junior high ministry of the church. So that's what Andy asked me. I'm like, ah, it sounds scary, actually. Sounds like a nightmare because last year I actually said I would never go on a mission trip because I didn't want to be responsible for junior high kids. <laughs> I actually said that to him. And so it's a funny thing. And so even though I had the insecurities, even though I had the doubts, at the same time, I didn't want to go through the rest of my life wondering what could have happened if I said yes. You ever think in those terms? Instead of being so scared of what if this person rejects me? What if my friend hates me? What if... What if, whatever, I don't know. You ever think about, but if you do obey God, what could have happened? Could God have used it? Could, it have, could God do something beyond your expectations? You just never know. They had determination and they wouldn't stop until their friend met Jesus. I showed a couple of you guys this video and most of you didn't understand it. There's like probably only three of you, but I was watching a Star Wars documentary the other day. Don't ask why, because it literally was like, it's a Monday, it's my day off, and I'm just going to not do anything today. And I was so rebellious that I'm like, I'm going to watch a, a video of something I don't even care about. So I watched Star Wars, and I'm not even like a Star Wars fan, but I watched it, this documentary. I don't even know how I got there, but you know what it was? I was watching... This, there's like on Google Maps, you can go to this legendary studio called Abbey Studios in London. And you can go through a tour on Google Maps. It's really cool. And then like one of the videos was a Star Wars thing because they filmed the orchestra being recorded in the Abbey Road studio. So I watched this video, which turned into an hour of watching the <laughs> Star Wars documentary. Anyway, so in this, the guy John Williams, who I all of a sudden know all about because I searched on Wikipedia about him and just think about how I waste my time sometimes. John Williams, 
leads the orchestra, and he made all the songs for Star Wars. So like that theme song, you know, everything that's iconic in Star Wars and E.T. and a couple other different movies. I watched him compose and also, you know, organize this orchestra into making this, this uh, soundtrack for Star Wars. And so you got the screen up here. You have all these people all around. I kind of wish we could show the video right now. And it's just like so crazy. I'm thinking, what would it take for this guy to make this song? All these little parts, and he can hear everything. The little nuances, and the violins, and you have like all these hundreds of people singing in the choir. How do you even make something like that? The only word that came to me is dedication. That these guys, George Lucas, everyone else who works on these Star Wars films, spends years of their life just thinking about making this movie. Kind of makes sense why they're paid millions of dollars. They are so obsessing over it. And it's not like George Lucas is, is, is sitting at home being like, oh, man, I can't believe I have to make another Star Wars movie. But I need money, so I'm going to do it. He doesn't need money, believe me. If he just wanted to sit around for the rest of his life, he could. But there's an obsession there. There's a determination. There's a love there that he just cares so much about what he's doing that he's willing to, to have sleepless nights, to be up late and just working on this thing forever. Why do I bring that up right now? It's because Jesus himself said in Luke that Luke chapter 16 verse 8, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. It's so easy to be discouraged as a Christian. It's so easy to lose focus. To be like, have this like energy for evangelism. I'm going to go out and share the gospel with everybody. And I'm just like, I've been rejected two times and I want to give up now and just crawl into a hole and die. Or will you be like David when he saw that there was no house built for the Lord? There's like a verse in, in the Bible where David's like, here I am living in a castle and God is living in a tent. How does that work? So he says, God, I'm going to build you a house. God's like, that's funny. You can't build me a house because I'm God. Nice try. I'm going to build you a house, David. And David's like, I already have a house. But he says in Psalm 132 that I'm not going to sleep. I'm not give sleep to my eyelids until I find a house for the Lord, a place for Jesus. He was so determined that he wasn't going to let anything stand in his way, even if it means that he was a little bit tired. Like Jacob, I will not let you go until you bless me. How many of us have that determination to see our friends saved? To have them hear the gospel. Say, I'm going to take that youth rally car. I'm going to share it with somebody because I want someone to be healed of their sickness. I also was just thinking about in this passage, how, I mean, how many people did it realistically take to carry this man? I don't know. Maybe it took all four. But I kind of think about like, if you, if you ever like spent time moving things, and if you like lift something heavy with your friends, like a piano around the house, you're lifting things because you have to move stuff into a moving truck. There's always that one guy that doesn't do anything. He just kind of like guides. He's <laughs> like, I'm doing something right now. And he's just kind of helping out. I'm always that guy, by the way, because like I try moving a piano and the piano lifts me because I'm so light. It's not good. And people are just like, get out of the way. Just leave us alone. But what I love about that picture is I can imagine, this speculation, just take it for what you will. Imagine there's one person in there that's not really doing anything, but he's like, I just want to do everything that I can, even if it's a little bit. 
I want to do something, even if I can't hold up all of the weight. It's kind of like when a child is like, your dad's sick or something, and you as a child, you get out your medical kit, and you got like, I'm going to take care of you. I'm the doctor. Let me play doctor. And it's like, it's cute. It's like you can't do anything. But at least you want to do something. Maybe you're not the most talented evangelist in the world. Maybe you're not the most gifted person in the world, but you want to do something. That's a great start. Do something. You may not have the best voice in the world, but you want to serve. Serve. Be involved. What is our determination to see our friends come to Jesus? Well, maybe you're asking, well, I just don't even know what to do. How do you practically get people to come to Jesus? How about this? Just bring them. Invite them. Most of my, like, the times that people have come to church with me were not me just looking at people and be like, all right, guys, so uh, I'm going to, you know, like, I have, like, this crazy tactic. I just invite them and they come. We also... Like, if your friends really care about you, they'll probably come to church with you. Just the way it is. Closing up here, though. I want to mention the scribes in verse 6. Some of the scribes are sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus perceiving the spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. He says, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has powered on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. He arose, took up the bed. Everyone's praising God. Awesome, great, cool. Here's the thing. Where there is faith, there will be opposition. And or there will be obstacles. You will have people opposing your, your faith. There will be doubters. There will be haters. There will be people like, really, you can't. I don't think you can. There'll be people that are, even in the church, saying like, really, you think you can serve? You think you can evangelize? You think, yeah, maybe I, maybe I can, because the Bible says I can. What do you want me to do? Believe in God. The fact of the matter is, no matter what people say, there will always be obstacles, opposition, all those different things. We have to hear God's voice above every other voice. You can't listen to the naysayers. You can't listen to what the world is saying. Listen to what God is saying. In conclusion, here's the thing. And maybe you're one of those people here today. You're just like, I don't really believe in this whole God thing. Well, thank you for coming tonight, even if you're not a Christian. But I would just say this to you. Ask yourself, how do you deal with suffering? Maybe you're not going through suffering right now, but there will be a time coming when you are. And who do you go to? And if not the God of the universe, then all of our suffering is meaningless in the end. We're sick, we get better, we're sick, we get better, and then we die and it's over. But what do we do with the meaning of life? Ask yourself the big questions. Why are we here? Who put us here? What happens to us when we die? Because you'll spend a lot more time being dead than you will be being alive. In conclusion, though, I want to say this. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they're looking at Jesus And they're asking him questions and they're like, so why do you say that you can forgive sins? Implying that only God can forgive sins. So they were saying, Jesus is making himself to be God. That's blasphemy. We're going to tell you whatever. And so Jesus says, what do you want me to do? Which is easier to say? To say your sins are forgiven or to rise, take up your bed and walk? And when you hear that, you first think like, I don't really get it. What does that even mean? Well, you see, when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you, I can look at Vinny right here. I can say, Vinny, 
your sins are forgiven. Then he walks away and like, great. Like nobody knows if his sins are actually forgiven. I just said that. You can't see his sin. At least hopefully not. But if I say, Vinny, you've been crippled for like 38 years. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And he doesn't walk. It's going to be awkward for me, right? So that's very visible. And it's the same thing. So Jesus says, but that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And the guy walks. Implying that he logically has the power to forgive sins. So here's a connection that I want to make in closing. Which is easier to say, that Jesus is in our church or that Jesus lives inside of our hearts? Which is easier? It's easy for me to say, hey, come to youth group because we have all these Christians here and God's going to be there. It's going to be great. But do you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? That you yourself are God's house? Do you believe that? Because it's easier to believe sometimes that God can be here, but harder to believe that God's inside when you're all alone. When you are suffering and there's no one to carry you, when you're suffering and you're hurting and there's no one to call, do you still believe that God is with you? And do you believe that you have the light of the world, you are the light of the world and that his light is inside you. So you can let that light shine before men. That's what Jesus said. He He didn't tell his disciples, hey, round up all these people and bring them to church. He actually didn't say that. He said, go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. So let your light shine before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify their Father who is in heaven. You have lights automatically if you're a Christian here today. Let your light shine. Don't hide it. It's not about like be shiny. It's like just don't hide it. You should naturally be shining. So just go out there and let it shine and people see it and people automatically want to know what's different about you. So believe. Have faith in God. Don't let the obstacles get in the way. Be determined. Look at suffering as an opportunity to minister. And say, there's a person who's hurting, so I want to be there for my friends. To show them the love of Christ that the world can never give. The difference, once again, as we learned a couple weeks ago, between the world's love and God's love is this. The world loves people that love them back. Only Jesus and his love can love the people that no one wants to love. The people that you hate, your enemies... The world's wisdom says, get rid of your enemies, put them away, and only love the people that love you back. But Jesus says, love even the people that may never love you. And that's the type of love that the world needs. The reason why there's wars, the reason why there's fights, is because that kind of love is not in the world. The love of Jesus Christ, which can change every single person on the planet. I look at some of these people in the world. um, I was just watching on the news once again about that guy who was in Colorado and he did the shootings in that movie theater during the Batman movie. It's a crazy guy, psychotic guy. And even looking at this guy, I'm like, I can't even imagine what it's like to be in that city. I can't imagine what it's like to be one of those families who had one of their family members shot and killed. I can't even imagine what that's like. And, and to be honest, I can't imagine that God loves that person, that God So love the world, an evil, rotten, dirty world. But you know what? That gives hope for even the worst of us. That gives hope for you and me. That it doesn't matter how bad you think you are, that Christ's love can cover all sin.